0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of A Northern Wine Odyssey, presented by Cork Report Media. I'm Dan Belmont, joined once again by my esteemed colleague and co-host, Mr. Paul Brady. I'm actually coming to you live from Florence, Italy, where I'm on holiday with my family. We have such a cool guest slated today that I decided I would stop eating pasta for the next 60 minutes to chat with none other than my friend, Mr. Christopher Bates. How you doing, Chris?
1: Lovely, thank you.
0: Hey Dan, hey Chris, hey Paul, hey buddy, uh, and so let's let's dive right in. Um, Chris, you wear many hats. Uh, you are, and and stop me if I miss anything, but uh, you are a restaurant tour. Okay, so you run the FLX Hospitality Group in the Finger Lakes in uh, upstate western New York. You are a winemaker, you have multiple uh, uh, wine labels, wine brands, wineries, uh, and you also uh, do some brewing as well. Uh, you're also a master sommelier and you have some roles and responsibilities there. Uh, I, I always say you're, you're the busiest man in show business. Um, I, I got to ask, what does your, your daily routine look like, um, you know, if, if you have one? Are you, are you a caffeine guy or are, 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 are there performance enhancing drugs involved? Uh, because, you know, I, I, visited, uh, the Finger Lakes. I spent a lot of time, uh, with you and, and your wonderful, uh, wife, Isabel. And, uh, you are always the first one up in the morning. You're always the last one to go to bed at night. You are the host with the most,
2: uh, how do you do it? Wait, isn't, isn't there a dog now too? Dogs are people too, Dan.
1: There is. Olo is somewhere around here. Uh, you know, actually I don't drink caffeine. Uh, I had to cut out caffeine. So I'm sitting here drinking a nice cup of decaf at the moment.
2: Okay, I'm very curious about uh, as to this decision, because th- this is semi-recent then, yeah? Uh,
1: you know, uh, it's been the last two years, maybe.
2: Okay, and was that just kind of kind of the
1: regular reasons? Uh, you know, I'm getting old, uh, but it was making my eyes twitch. So uh, my, uh, my eyes will twitch when I drink uh, regular coffee. So uh, it was really a, a question of, you know, regular coffee and the joys that come with it, or my eyes twitching. And I chose my eyes not twitching. So, but you know, I've never really been a, I've never had a caffeine addiction. Uh, I like a lot of folks, I, I drink coffee like crazy, always have, but it's never been like a, a necessary thing for me to wake up. It's just, I enjoy nice, hot, bitter, Bowl of brew, I guess.
2: And so, was the eye twitching keeping you up at night? Is, is is that what it was, or was it just kind of a, in general?
1: It's just annoying.
2: So no, no, no tea, no, uh, anything caffeinated. Done, donezo. I
1: I don't really like tea very much, and um, I don't drink anything. I don't drink any drinks other than water, booze, and coffee. So coffee was really the only thing that I had to give up. You know, I don't, not, not much of an energy drink kind of guy. And uh, soda's not my jam either. So I stay away from, from anything with sugar.
2: I kind of, I'm, it, the decaf is a strong move. I, I myself often think about that because I've had to cut back. I mean, I love coffee and drink it most of the day. and uh, But now I try to stop around like, I used to have like that late afternoon cup, three four p.m. But now I got to cut it off a little sooner. So I've been thinking about getting some decaf just to have that warm drink in the late afternoon. So that's a, I'm gonna follow your lead.
1: Here's the thing: it pisses me off. And it, for me, I'm wondering if there's if there's an amazing um, opportunity out there for somebody who who takes it on. But you know, it really is kind of annoying because as this whole generation of of coffee like obsessors moves on into this next generation of their of their life right like we start to get to the point where I think more and more of of those of us that grew up with the light roasts and the the 55 different um, brewing techniques and the all of the different um, uh, you know bean origins and things like that start to get to a point in life where they don't want the caffeine it really annoys me that decaf drinkers are still treated as second-class citizens hmm. I'm so tired of getting the eye rolls when I when I rock into a coffee shop with everybody and go oh what do you have for decaf you know we're people too come on fantastic uh,
0: other than uh, other than our our, our, our caffeine or, or, or lack thereof uh, uh, fix uh, Paul what have you been drinking lately
2: yeah let's see actually a fair bit of cider um, which you know, I, I know we, we say all the time that we're all going to drink more cider and the, whatever the subsequent year is, is going to be the year of cider and blah, 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 and it never happens. But um, I don't know. I, I still have hope that it is going to happen for, for all us cider lovers and the makers of cider out there. Uh, in particular, uh, a pet gnat from Eve's, uh, which is up uh, near Christopher's neck of the state, uh, it's just called there. Oh, I have the bottle here somewhere. Uh, it's, it's a lovely sort of off dry pet nat that we pour by the glass at the bar these days. You know, it's right, right around eight and a half percent alcohol. And that's really why I like it. I love the flavor. I love the structure. I love that little bit of uh residual sugar. And I like that I can drink an entire bottle of it, pretty much drink a whole bottle of it on Thanksgiving with, uh, my fiance and her family and was feeling just very pleasant the whole time. So yeah, cider. It's. I know it's probably never going to happen, but I'm gonna. I'm always going to hope for it. <laughs> Chris, how about you?
1: You know I bounce around so much with with what I drink, um, uh, literally from day to day, basically. Um, but uh, I don't know. I guess I guess I've probably been uh, into uh, had a couple of beers lately. Uh, that's been on my mind a little bit, and sherry is always. Always front and center, and uh, I returned from Mexico City uh, a couple of weeks ago with, a, um, with a, uh, an obsession for clarified cocktails. So, kind of bouncing around between the gamut of all of it.
0: Tell, tell everybody a little bit more about what a clarified cocktail is.
1: So, i have been playing with the milk punch technique. So, essentially, it is um, clarifying a cocktail using milk. So by taking a cocktail with some acidity um, and pouring it over a small amount of milk or cream, um, it'll cause that uh, dairy to break and curdle, essentially kind of creating a consomme-like effect, you know, like you'd make a raft and clarify a consomme and it kind of breaks into cheese curds, essentially, and you strain that through and you get a perfectly crystal clear cocktail.
0: Very cool. Uh, as for me, I'm in Italy. I've been drinking Italian wine. Uh, I got to go through Tuscany for the last three days. Uh, it was my first trip to the area, uh, and I was just blown away. It's a it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. I, I don't think I uh, had in my head uh, how dramatic the, the, the hills, the mountains really are, uh, and so we stayed uh, in Montalcino uh, and um, stayed at... Um, a winery, uh, agro-tourism uh, spot called Le uh, Ranier. I'm always pronouncing that, that name poorly, but um, they actually have the highest vineyards in, in Montalcino, uh, and uh, that was a, a real treat to to wake up to those views every morning. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, a bit of Brunello uh, for, from some, uh, some really lovely producers, and then yesterday we made our way up through Chianti, and I only had time for, for one producer. I, I'm traveling with the family, so it wasn't a full-on. Uh, immersive trip, but we got to stop at a, a winery called Monti Bernardi, uh, and the winemaker there, his name is Michael. Uh, he is a really, really smart guy. One of the, 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 just, uh, uh, the best kind of winemaker, uh, you know, meet and greets that I've had in a long time where, uh, myself, my, my in-laws, my wife, you know, these guys aren't in the industry, uh, all walked away, uh, learning a whole bunch, uh, from this guy, uh, History of the of the Chianti region, uh, from you know its share cropping roots all the way all the way to today, and and um, how he's making you know different decisions than his uh, his his uh, his neighbors, and um, it's uh, uh, it's working out very well for him. The wines are great, and so uh, that was a real a real treat yesterday, and uh, and yeah, we've got a, a bit of Brunello on the counter for for dinners here at home, and uh, yeah, all good things. Nice, yeah. So Chris. What do uh, what you do? What's the rest of your day look like today?
1: So today is largely a meeting day. Um, I've got uh, my my monthly board of directors call for the quartermaster Sommeliers. I'm going to try and catch up on about three years worth of email and uh, possibly get distracted and either head to the vineyard for a minute or head to the winery.
0: Uh, okay, so let's go into uh, the, the winery and, and the vineyards. Tell us about those projects, and uh, we'll, we'll see what kind of uh, tangents we take off of that.
1: Yeah, so you know we started Element Winery um, almost 15 years ago now. Um, and kind of the key to Element for us was, I guess, trying to, to test what we believed was the potential uh, that, that existed here in the Finger Lakes. And that at least at that time, I don't believe was regularly being tapped into, um, or even really regularly being explored. Um, you know, this was 2007, 2008, um, clearly, obviously there was a a couple of key players at the time who were, who were pushing on those, on those, on those, or pulling on those strings a little bit, but in general, um, it was a really different time than we're in now. And so ultimately, uh. We came back from from making wine in in Italy and in Germany, kind of invigorated to see what the real potential was here. So we started Element Winery, just tinkering around a little bit with the idea of seeing if 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 the quality of wine that we thought was possible here, if we could actually realize it. And so we started the little winery and uh, made a couple of made a couple of wines in two thousand nine and two thousand and ten um, with really with the idea of of being a negociant, um, you know, buying fruit and experimenting with different terroirs and different soils and different uh, growing methods and different growers, different grapes, different lakes, different exposures, and all of those fun things. And so, um, kind of the first couple of wines that we made, we started to see really quickly what we believe or what. What the potential might be here, and some of those first wines just really blew us away. And so, Element was really formed with this idea of, of trying to prove what was possible here in the Finger Lakes, and ultimately just make it really simple for others to, to to follow and to you know encourage others to to follow the same path of of pushing for pushing for quality over quantity pushing for, um, you know, a whole new idea of what the potential was here and what that potential might be worth. So, you know, Elements started from that and we're going on almost, geez, I guess we're probably on 15 years now uh, of of making those wines. So that was where it all began.
0: Were there any big surprises uh, along the way in terms of uh, variety or, or really, you know, what, what you could accomplish or, uh, on the other side, were there, were there things that, that didn't kind of come to, come to fruition? I I know your wines quite well. They're, they're all very good. Uh, so I'm always curious to know if there's something that, that, that didn't make it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think most of what we have, uh, you know, I had this crazy idea back in the day that I thought that the Finger Lakes might have the ability to make really great Syrah. Um, which I bought some in 2010 and then again in an 11 and, and, and 12 and so on, and that has turned out to be um shocking to me that I was that, that those wines are coming out as as good, if not better, than I thought was even possible. Um, you know, I think. My little experiments and forays into Grenache have been really exciting and surprising to me uh, as well and would probably surprise most people, especially blind. Um, some things that I've, I've struggled with a little bit. Uh, while, <clears throat> let's see, maybe probably one of the ones that I've really have not been able to get off the ground was, was, was my attempts at making Concord. Um, which was just kind of a toying around idea to see if, you know, wondering if questioning the stereotypes of of those grapes and whether, because I think plainly it's clear that there uh, that very few of us have ever had any Concord grapes from the or Concord wines from the past that we would consider great. Um, but, Again, it just made me question whether that was potential or ability. And so I figured I'd give it a shot. And we made a, we made a little Concord in 2016. The same way I make Syrah. So a whole cluster, old vines, handpicked, sorted, all of those fun things. And um, really put everything we, we apply to all of our vinifera into that wine. And at the end of the day, it still just tastes like Concord. Um, so that was one I haven't haven't really gotten over yet. I was a little surprised at how boring and bland the the few Chenin Blanc grapes I've gotten my hands on have been. Those are probably the ones that haven't come to fruition yet.
2: Well so my recollection is that uh over the in the early years of Element you you were making Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cap Franc Merlot, uh and Syrah. Am I missing anything? Was there a white another white?
1: The first wines were Riesling in nine, and then we added Syrah Capfranc and Pinot in ten. Um, kind of every year after that, we started to add something new. So Chardonnay got added to the lineup pretty quick. I made a little bit of Merlot and Lemberger uh, or blau for a couple of vintages there um, in like 15 and 16. Um, and then got even crazier in 16 by adding some Gamay and some, some, um, Gewurzt to the lineup. Um, but, you know, ultimately in, in, so 16 was like this ballooning vintage for us. Like every year we were adding something and, you know, I've always done my little experiments of the 40 pounds of, of, of Grenache I get or the eight vines worth of Chenin Blanc that, that are planted somewhere. And, I always made those things along, on the side, but, you know, ultimately for the stuff that we actually make, it was really our, what I consider our core has always been, um, Syrah Pinot and Cap Franc, Riesling and Chardonnay. Those have been my biggest focuses over the years.
2: And can you take us into the next, uh, label or brand that, that you're going to release? And I, th- there's some sparkling wine kicking around too isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is for is. It'll be kicking around for a while. Uh so yeah, we kind of things changed. Um 16 was a was the vintage that we really kind of expanded and I don't know how many different skews I made in 16. It was a lot. Um at least for us. So we added by 16 we were making lemberger, merlot, gamay, in two styles, Gewurzt in two styles, and so on and so forth. Um, but in 16, I also uh, began the process of, of buying a vineyard. So in 16, we found a piece of land in Lodi, just north of Lodi Point, uh, that was that had been planted in uh, 2000. So 15 plus year old vines, essentially at that point. Uh, and was uniquely planted to pretty much only what we make. So I had stopped making Riesling at that point, point. Um, and the vineyard had no Riesling, it had no natives, it had no hybrids, which is a very strange thing to find a vineyard in the Riesling that has no Riesling natives or hybrids in it. Um, but even more interestingly, it was planted with Syrah, Pinot Noir, Cap Franc, Cap Sauve, Merlot, and Chardonnay. And so in 17, we took on the farming of the vineyard, and that kind of changed our, changed what we were doing with Element a lot, because so much of what we'd worked on up until then was, you know, experimentation on um, with site selection and with um, different grapes and with all of these other variables that, with your own vineyard, no longer exist. So as we started farming, that we realized that it was no longer about what, you know, water where or from who we bought our grapes from. That was that was kind of the, um, you know, the experimental factor. It was what we did in the vineyard, how we treated it, how we pruned, how we farmed. Um, that was that was really driving what we did. So along with a cease and desist at that time, uh, it sparked us into this idea of. Thinking that maybe it was time to reimagine what we did. And, you know, so much of so much of the mission that we set out about 10 years earlier with Element was either had either been achieved or was in the process. I mean, I think people consider the potential of what's possible in terms of quality here in the Finger Lakes very different today than they did 15, 20 years prior. Um, and so a lot of those things that we set out for. You know, there was more small wineries popping up that were focused on wine production over shitnack sales and that kind of stuff. So it was really a big. It, it was this idea that much of what we'd started Element Four was already in process. So we started to rethink what what we were going to do in the future, and that was where the idea of Colloquial came from. So um, we've been prepping to to release or to launch Colloquial uh, as our, um, you know, essentially just from wines from our from our made from our wine farm. So um, that's kind of been the big focus for the last couple of years. And so we've been making that shift and transitioning and prepping new labels and new names and all of those things, uh, which at the pace at which I work uh, has taken five years now and is almost done. Um, but, uh, we also decided along the way that, cause of course, I then realized that when I got the opportunity to buy some fruit from friends who I really did want to work with, there was no way I could turn it down. So we've actually decided to, uh, launch a, a third label as well now as we move forward. So, um, we just, uh, released the wines of In Our Element, um, and we will be releasing some new wines from Element coming up soon. And then hopefully by spring, I'll be uh, putting the first, the first vintage of um, colloquial on the market.
0: Well, I've had some sneak peeks, uh, some previews. The last time I visited, and, and it's all, uh, it's all very exciting. Um, you said you were going to head to the vineyard later. What, what does uh, one do in a vineyard on December first?
1: Well, I just finished tilling up last week. It's been, um, it's been an interesting year. Um, I actually, uh, so Phil so from the beginning, I, I don't. I'm not a vineyard guy. Uh, in fact, I mean, I sort of came to winemaking through a, a roundabout way as well. You know, I didn't I didn't go to school for this. I didn't have professional training in this stuff. This is all just things that I've, you know, come to from my love of wine and my sort of sommelier studies over the years. Is knowing how things are made and what I like about them, and really just kind of mimicking that in what I do in the winery. So. Um, when, we, when it came to the vineyard, I, I had really no idea how to run a vineyard. So we um, have been working with a vineyard manager, uh, or two different vineyard managers over the last couple of years. And um, after uh, last vintage, our vineyard manager at the time decided that they were done managing vineyards altogether at this point. Uh, last year was a very stressful year. And so uh, when when I found out this spring that I didn't have a vineyard manager anymore uh, and I couldn't find anybody to replace them given the, the labor shortages that we're all having. uh, I took on the vineyard management myself. So I've been struggling this entire year to keep up, especially given all the the repairs that needed to be done that had been neglected for a while. So I've been scrambling to get the vineyard caught up and um, get, my tractors fixed, get my equipment fixed, and get the equipment that I really needed. And so I just, when I was talking to you the other day, I was on my way to finish hilling up. Um, And today I'm probably going to check to make sure that my hill-ups were done correct, get a count on the number of vines I need to repost, because I'm waiting for for my post-pounder to come back, and uh, just get those last couple of things wrapped up for the year get the tractors put away, make room, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Very cool. You mentioned uh, that you have a board meeting call later today. What What is your, tell everybody, what is your official role uh, with the Court of Master Sommeliers Americas?
1: Yeah, so I've been on the board of directors for the last couple of years. Um, so uh, I am a board member and uh, currently uh, I am the committee chair for our international committee. So I'm working on um, you know how we're going to continue to um, build and develop in, um, in new markets and then just working on mm-hmm. our kind of overall global relations. Before we
2: get to CMS and, and that uh, part of your career, Um, One last thing to touch up on the vineyard and without, you know, at the risk of letting this dominate the rest of the podcast, which we shouldn't, but I can't, I can't not ask. Christopher, I mean, you're, as is both a sommelier and a, and a, a winemaker, now a vineyard manager. It's interesting that you have sort of not let the Riesling narrative of the Finger Lakes dominate your production, which some would see as unusual, uh, I, I just want to touch on that for a, a minute or, or two as to um why your focus has taken you to other varieties and, and I don't think there's certainly anything wrong with that. It was sort of like you said, the narrative now is certainly different than it was uh fifteen or twenty years ago. But uh just curious as to how uh you led yourself in that direction.
1: Yeah, I, I started out making Riesling um and after I think really Around 2014, I decided I was done making Riesling. And the reason is really simple. It wasn't fulfilling my mission uh, with the winery. You know, I mean, we're a tiny winery. We make 750 to 1,000 cases across six plus SKUs. So we make a tiny, tiny amount of wine. The wine is, is essentially insignificant in the real world. But for us, the point of the winery is what we can do with those thousand cases. It's the impact that we can have uh, domestically and globally with the wines that we put forth. And it's what we it's the doors that we can open for the rest of the industry. And it's the narratives that we can create for the rest of the industry that for me are really what drive the winery. Right. Like it was about proving that we could make a quality of wine that can stand glass to glass next to the great wines of the world. It was proving that we can do that with more than what had been previously thought of, right? Like even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was, there was a reputation that the Finger Lakes could make great Riesling, right? But there wasn't a reputation beyond much of that. Or much beyond that rather I should say the point of the winery was to do that it was to prove that we can make great stuff and then beyond that to prove that if we put that quality in bottle that there would be interest that the global market would take note and that there would be a willingness to pay the prices that it costs to make those wines cuz you know if you want to know what could take up the entire rest of this podcast it's me bitching about price pointing here in the Finger Lakes and what it actually costs to produce to produce great wine here. So, you know, ultimately those were the things that drove us was prove that we can make the wine, prove that if we can make the wine, we can sell the wine, and prove that if we can sell the wine, we can charge enough to make it worth doing. And the reality is is that I wasn't adding to the conversation about Riesling. We've already got a bunch of great wineries here doing exactly those same things with Riesling. And so, it Element wasn't adding to that conversation necessarily. I like our Riesling, I like the wine, I'm, I love Riesling. It is my favorite grape in the world, most likely. Um, but if it wasn't achieving the mission, it, wasn't really necessary for us to be doing. So, I thought it would be more helpful for me to spend my time showing what I thought was possible here with red wines and with Chardonnay, uh, to really just kind of affect the big picture in the long term. Because at the end of the day, like you don't, you know, what nobody's making money off of a thousand cases of wine. This isn't what what was driving this project, right?
2: Yeah. And this, this might be a way to kind of keep us uh, on point to transition next to talk about the Quartermaster Sumway stuff and your involvement there. Um, But you, you know, you spend a lot of time around the country, both hearing from trade and consumers. I'm curious um, in your early days at Provisions, which is uh, your, your shop um, where you sell um, mostly, if not all New York state products, um, and it, do I understand there's a second one now in Corning, right? Yeah. So in your early days, and it's, I'm, I'm sort of selfishly asking this cause I'm, I'm coming up on a year of, of, uh, the year anniversary of our business. And, you know, I go in every day and every day or every other day, at least someone comes in and they just say, hi, I'm looking for a red wine, you know, something bold, like a cab. And they pull out like a $10 bill and they're ready to walk out with a $10 cab or something full-bodied like that. I'm wondering if you experienced that as often as I did in your early days at Provisions and
1: what you said to those people. You know, I think possibly because we'd, we'd already had a bit of a reputation here in the region, and especially since Provisions was essentially attached to table right off the bat, I don't know that people necessarily came to us with that expectation. Because for the most part, by the time we started Provisions, people were coming in with um, either because of its association with Element or with Table or just with our brand. And so we didn't see maybe as much of that, but it's certainly something that we deal with all the freaking time. And, you know, aside from just doing our best with the selection to try to make sure that we have a broad swath of wines. Um, a part of that conversation is simply that we don't make bulk wine here in the Finger Lakes, right? Like this isn't a place that there are places that are really easy to grow fruit and there are places that are really easy to grow a lot of fruit. This just isn't one of them. And so when we talk about this region, We have to remember how absolutely tiny and how limited the production really is here that doesn't allow us to farm, you know, 4,000 contiguous acres of, with with almost no inputs, like you might see in, in certain other climates. So I think it's just, it's hard sometimes. We do try to always stock that range of price points for people. But as you said, I mean, there is no big, bold uh, Finger Lakes Cabernet for under 10 bucks. That just doesn't exist. And I think in general, at least here in the region, prices have started to change. And consumers are understanding that for the most part.
2: Well, I want to ask you more about that. And you brought that up earlier because anytime I think that we get a chance to educate consumers uh, as to how pricing works is a valuable conversation. And you have your ear to the pulse throughout the country and world, even with your uh, various uh, responsibilities and whatnot. And, you know, I'll get people that come in and they've got their natural wine or their natural food store, you know, tote bag or their haul from the farmer's market and their little cart and whatnot. And they come in asking for very cheap wine. And every once in a while, I'm able to, every once in a while, gracefully have a conversation as to, well, you know, the food that you have in in your bag there doesn't really line up uh, with what you're trying to buy uh, in terms of wine here. And then we'll have a conversation and hopefully they leave having bought a bottle, but sometimes they don't. And I try to quickly let them know there are two other fabulous wine stores in town uh, where they where they can go. Um, but, you know, how do we continue? I, I just don't think consumers are ready to sacrifice their cheap Chianti. And I don't mean to pick on cheap Chianti. I like it as much as the next guy, but I'm just going to use that as the example. I don't think people are... Uh, people sure do seem to be ready to eat locally and sustainably, but they're not quite yet ready to give up their cheap Chianti. Uh, Christopher, what what is your ex- experience with that?
1: Well, yeah, I wonder if there's a scale issue there, right? Like you want to buy nicer beets and you're talking about two extra dollars, right? Like to go get local farmer market beets as opposed to buying beets. And I don't know why I chose beets of all freaking things now, but you know what I mean? Like uh, to buy a little bit nicer produce at the farmer's market is a couple of bucks more. When you start to talk about wine though, I think that that oftentimes becomes a much bigger commitment point for people, right? Like, cause we're not usually talking about getting somebody to scale from a $10 bottle to a $12 bottle. In the case of, you know, great new york wine i think that we can start to find some wines in the 20 price point that are really good maybe a couple that hit below 20 bucks on the shelf but for the most part i think a lot of what you sell i'm guessing and a lot of what i sell are wines that are over 30 right or at 30 in that 30 range and so in a lot of cases i think we're asking customers to to jump from 10 bucks to 30 which feels like more money to them than going from three bucks to five bucks, even though the scale might, might not be that, that different, or at least the ratio might not be that different. The, the, the actual outcome of those of the dollars might feel more significant to them. You know, and I think obviously just scaling in the wine business in general is, is, is challenging, right? Like, to get somebody to go from uh, a $12 six pack to a $12 bottle of wine and then to go up from there to 15 18 21 etc is challenging. I don't think that's obviously not something that, that that the finger lakes or New York deals with specifically, but it's it's echoed here as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's also a challenge for both of you guys being in, in region, right, where you're surrounded by producers and you're trying to sell at a retail markup, you know?
1: I wanted to ask you about that, Dan, because my experience has been, well, let me ask you, how do your customers react to the price of top quality New York wines? Do they find them to be overly expensive?
0: I I don't necessarily think it's an overly expensive issue. You know, I think we can convince.
1: Do they find them to be shockingly
0: expensive? No, I I don't think they find them to be to be shockingly expensive because you can justify that that's that's what they cost to make. That's the appropriate you know markup for them. Um, What it's just it's it's the the why they need them is the problem, right? Why do you need that when you know, particularly here in Europe, you have Germany with very inexpensive Riesling. You have Chianti, Italy, with very inexpensive, uh, you know, uh, reds uh, on hand. And I think it is, you know, it's that economics of scale bit. You know, these are I'm starting to position them more as these these are rare wines, see, right? You know, these are this is a, a very tiny place and it's a very uh, hyper localized kind of situation that allows these grapes to grow and and uh, and trying to paint a bit more of that that magic there for the um, you know, the, 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 build the excitement around those wines, you know, no, I'm, I'm very excited about, it. I mean, you know, listen, I think that, um, there's more New York state wine in the United Kingdom now than there ever has been. Most of those relationships are under five years old. Um, I would say even maybe under three years old. Uh, I'm happy to take, uh, uh, credit for a couple of those, which, which, um, is, is, you know, always been a big, big source of pride for us. Um. You know and good wine good people stocks more new york state wine than anybody by by far i mean it's um i think i'm up around 30 different different wines uh from new york on the site and so you know i'm also um i, I can benefit from you know this the whole kind of concept of my site is this relationship building where people are putting their trust in me and i'm you know i'm telling them that the, that the value is there in these wines um and so you know, they might not be clamoring for New York state wine, but they're always happy to receive it. And I never get any complaints once they open.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I think one of the things that, uh, when it comes to, you know, price point, when I travel and talk about New York state wines, nobody blinks an eye at the price point. It's only here in the region that I see people really kind of be surprised when I'm in Japan or I'm in, 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 in California, everyone's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's seems reasonable. And then I come back here and it's like, you know, New York, New York, whether I think New York state in general, just because they have this history of what the wines used to be. And there's that kind of stigma that's still attached to it. So.
2: Well, yeah, the history of, of the domestic wines, but also the fact that New York state has access to, pretty much more wine than anywhere else in the world. Yeah.
0: yeah. And London has that problem too. What, what is a benefit is that the UK wine industry also doesn't really have these large scale bulk producers. The grapes are not, you know, uh, uh, as bountiful as, as, uh, as it is in other places in the world. And so, you know, there's not a lot of cheap UK wine kicking about either right? And so um, I think they just have a bit more of an understanding uh, because that's their their local environment as well.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Christopher, let's get back
2: to the CMS a little bit and we'll use um, the SOM documentaries as, as a springboard here. So <laughs> Psalm documentaries, good or bad?
1: Uh, I think that they were wonderful. Um, you know, it's, I think, obviously there's, there's, easy things to take digs at here. Um, But the reality is, is overall, like, it really brought not only the sommelier world, but I think wine to a lot of people, it brought an interest that just didn't exist before. And, you know, you were doing this long before that existed as well, I think. And, you know, we all remember what it used to be like trying to tell people what what we did. And to actually have people know what a sommelier is, know that there is a profession in wine, um, I think has been really, really important for just for the world in general and for certainly for our industry in general.
2: Yeah. I mean, to this day, there are still people who come into my shop and bar and um, talk about those films as as uh, the that they were an introduction to you know just kind of a fun side of the industry and getting to know that and and using that to learn more about wine etc yeah definitely a good thing um you know i'm wondering what what the future of content might be for an organization like cms i mean there's just you can't really avoid it there have been a few people involved in those films who have had a a fall from grace uh, in the last couple of years. and so I gather that some of those key figures are not no longer going to be involved, but but there there is new content being created, I'm sure. and i'm I'm curious as to if you know or can talk a little bit about what that is or if not, you know what what kinds of content is, is are out there for young people wanting to get into the industry now or just curious consumers even.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the focus for our for the organization is to continue to to be a leader in 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 is to continue to be a leader as we look at sort of elevating the beverage industry as a whole. You know, whether it's through sommeliers directly using the old school definition of somebody that works in a restaurant, or through what you know is becoming the new definition of a sommelier, which is somebody in a position in the world that directly sells to consumers' wines. And I think that the CMS has been a really pivotal part of that over the last 30, 40 years, and I think is going to continue to be a very pivotal, pivotal, okay, is going to continue to be a very key part of driving that, that growth in our industry forward. You know, and between the CMS and organizations like WSET and all of the, all of the other, um, organizations that are, you know, pushing forth growth in our industry, better professionals in our industry, more knowledge in our industry and to our consumers. I think that we all benefit from that. So I think it's a strong future. So
2: in terms of, uh, you know, young sommeliers coming up, I have a young staff. Uh, they they come to me and they ask for recommendations for books and and content and things like that. What are some things that you like right now, Christopher, or that that you're involved with creating or, or the CMS organization or re- really just anyone in terms of resources for people, whether they want to begin uh, the, the court sequence or just want to do things on their own?
1: Yeah. So from a... A court side. Um, I absolutely love the um, launch of the online intro that we had last year or the year I guess last year maybe year before um, which I think is a really, really great progression from you know the old the, the in-person intro that we've been running for decades now essentially. Um, so the online, uh, was essentially a, it covers our traditional kind of whole world of wine, but allows people to take it at their own pace, which I think is a really cool option versus Paul, did you, you do, you went through intro, right? Yeah. I've gone through a few levels. You went went through the court for a while. So, you know, like the old school days of doing the intro where it's like you show up and you've got essentially 12 hours worth of classes to cover the entire world at record speed, um, I think was was great for certain people, um, but was also challenging for others. And it meant coming in with so much knowledge and really gave such little time for one to, to actually learn from those classes or recognize where they might've had a weakness. So this new online one, I think, is really great because it allows you to watch a lecture and go, oh, I got all of that. Yep, I understood it. It also allows you to watch the lecture and go, whoa, I don't know nearly enough about that, and go spend a couple of days looking at other resources and come back and watch it again. So that, I think, is super cool. I'm really excited about the work that we've done on that. Um, Outside of the CMS, obviously, I think Guild Psalm remains one of the most pivotal um, ways of of accessing knowledge for sure. Um, You know, the in a world where things change so quickly, um, I think, as much as I love the books that I once studied from uh, Guild Psalm is an amazing resource to have really up to date, constantly vetted information. So I think that that's a really great one for people. And then ultimately, if you want to learn more about wine, do wine, right? Like, I think this continues to be one of those missing arts in hospitality is people say that they want to learn something. The best way to do it isn't to study it. It's to go live it, right? So you want to learn about wine and being a sommelier, come and work in the industry. Go you know, hop on, hop on, uh, you know, the an opportunity to do an internship or go stage somewhere or go get a job. I think those things are really key and have been have been kind of overlooked for a little while now.
0: Yeah, I had just landed my WSET level three, uh, right before the, the move to London. And I said, you know, several people. Oh, you're gonna go for the diploma. You're going to London. That's where, you know, it's 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 headquartered. The whole thing. And I said, you know what? I I'm gonna make the pivot. I went from the cheese company to the wine company. I kind of flipped the script there. Uh, and so that got me just kind of more industry immersion, and then just the ability to travel um, and and you know meet people and see the places. And uh, I you know I collect rocks everywhere I go. And um, for me, that's just been absolutely invaluable. Um, and especially now that I run my own business, I'm, I'm not hurting for another certification. Uh, and so um, I think when I struggled, and this this might be a controversial thing to say, but I struggled with the WSET. Uh, I very much felt like I was being taught how to pass a test, not how to love <laughs> wine, right? Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if, 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 you know, you feel the court kind of positions Things very differently, you know. I think when it comes to these really specialized kind of exams, it's it's a it's just a pitfall. It's it's a hard thing to to avoid. Um, but um, but yeah, that that's my general experience. And and just I also wanted to say thank you for um, you know suggesting that there's this new definition of the term sommelier. I I always push back when people call me a, a som. I um, have never actually held that specific role in a restaurant environment you know i've worked in wine bars i've uh i'm obviously a retailer now i do mostly education uh you know i'm, I'm very happy with fine wine I, I usually prefer wine educator because even expert has this tone of finality to it that that is the exact reason is the exact opposite of the reason why i love wine is that I, i'll never know it all i'll always be able to continue uh this education and wear different hats and and, and try new things um, but uh, I usually push back whenever someone tries to introduce me as a psalm. I'm like, well, but um, I guess, yeah. When when are, when is the actual definition of psalm gonna gonna change? Has it already changed? Did I did I did I miss it?
1: You know, I don't think it's a little bit like saying you're a chef, right? That I've heard that term be used in so many different ways over so many different years and evolve so drastically, and I, I couldn't agree more. I also push back on it when, when people want to call me a sommelier, I'm like, "Uh, I mean, I, I I passed a test that gives me a title of master sommelier, but that is definitively not what I do on a day to day basis. So yeah, it's, it's a challenging one. And, you know, I think people get what they, people can come out of whether it's WSET, whether it's, 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 um, Society of Wine Educators, or whether it's quartermaster sommeliers, you know, you could come out of that, those programs with whatever, um, I think, perception that, that you wanted to find of as to how the education works. Um, for me, I loved, I and I never did WSET, I did um, CMS and Society of Wine Educators and a couple of others, and I, I loved them. Because they, per, like for me, it drove me, it pushed me to learn more, which certainly during some of that time makes you kind of hate wine a little bit. <laughs> um, there's definitely times where you're like, I don't want to think about this at all anymore. But for me, it, it really helped me, um, it helped me, it helped drive me to push myself to learn and understand uh, to learn, which eventually leads to understanding, as you start to take the knowledge, and apply it to the real world, right? Like, anytime you just are studying, most people, I think when they study, they learn knowledge. And then later on, they learn how to understand that knowledge. So, you know, I think all those programs, they're not for everybody they're certainly not a mandatory thing but for a lot of folks i think that they'll find some version of them to be helpful in in inspiring them in providing them with some resources for education or in their in their education in general but again for the most part for me it's well it's not just the push it's it's also the community right like that's the other thing that i always think about with my time going through going through and being involved in 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 those um certifications is the people that i met along the way also become a really big part of of the value of of that of going in those routes so
0: yeah that's your that's your tribe. That's your network. Uh, and it ends up, you know, the, I just think about, uh, the, you know, the folks you I went to university with, you know, um, those uh, those you experience that together. You have that shared experience. It makes a huge difference. And, and those are the people you end up uh, leaning on uh, uh, throughout. And I think, you know, the big takeaway is that, you know, we're very lucky in that there is so many opportunities for education that can fit for different purposes. Right. And, you know, for me, I, 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 I didn't mean to um, crap on education, you know, Um, I even took another course after moving to London. I have have an American wine expert certification uh, and it's because I found myself the token American in, in London. And I said, you know, I should really buff up on, on my American wine knowledge. Uh, And uh, it was an incredibly valuable course. It was an online course as well. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very glad to, to have done that.
2: Christopher, you mentioned books and, and how, you know, books and information have have changed uh, in terms of, you know, maybe when we were coming up to, uh, versus now. But this is another question I get asked all the time, which is, what are some wine books? And now I sound like the end of the, of the Ezra Klein podcast, which is always, what are three books that you would recommend? And I'm just curious as to, you know, one or two books that you might suggest to a young person getting into wine. And I'm curious, well, I gotta bounce this off you. I always come back to the very first wine book that I ever read, which was The Emperor of Wine by Ellen McCoy, which was the, which is the biography of Robert Parker. And even to a young person, I recommend this book because it paints the picture of what the how the dominant wine drinking culture sort of became what it is in the US, including, you know, why people to this day come in looking for those big bold reds. All the time, I I still think that's a useful book in terms of learning how our our wine drinking culture was sort of shaped in the modern sense. But what are what are a couple books that you would recommend?
1: So this might surprise people, but um, I don't really read. Uh, It's a bit of a challenge, but I'm not a good. uh, I've never been a. I've never been a good reader, and so um, my book knowledge is um, probably disappointingly limited for most folks. Um, when it comes to, are you asking in reference to studying learning books or understanding interest books? Either. So studying, uh, obviously for me, it was always um, Stevenson and Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson. Those three books were like my study or those, those, those three authors and their major titles were my, were my studying, you know, kind of trifecta, if you will. Um, so we're
2: talking Sotheby's Wine Encyclopedia, right? Uh, o- Oxford and... Wine Atlas, yeah.
1: And then Hugh Johnson's little uh, yearly roundup report, which I don't even know if he still does anymore. But uh, those were always like my core books in that in that kind of genre. For actually enjoying wine or interest, um, Wine and War is the first one that I would always recommend to everybody. Um, I... Absolutely love that book, and then later on their whole series. Uh, I think they came out with. I think the the second one was called Champagne, um, which is just really stunning. And for me, it's because you know I think wine. I think wine is delicious, right? And I think part of wine, part of what makes wine interesting, is its deliciousness. But it's also feelings and emotions and interest, right? Like for me, it's, it's what the wine makes you feel, whether that's through how it tastes or how it smells or how it looks or the history or the knowledge or your affinity to it, right? Like it's not about one, I think wine is oftentimes thought of as just how it tastes. But to me, it's again, it's that feeling of like, I'm happy. It brings me joy to have the opportunity to taste this or drink this or consume this or share this. And so Wine and War was one of those books that to me put so much of that into context as to what makes some of these beverages amazing. You know, when you, when you read the history of, of some of the, the wines that we get to drink today, it's like, that's th- that, that deeper knowledge just puts it all into perspective. And the book Champagne, which talks about sort of the history of Champagne through its its wartime tragedies, uh, kind of does the same thing. Um, and then maybe for somebody just getting into wine, Wine for Dummies is a book that that was the first wine book I ever read. I think uh, outside of like some Wine Spectator magazines, and it was it's it's one of the books that I always keep on hand in my uh, in in my locations for for teams for the team to just grab and read anytime because I think it's great I think they do a great job with that
0: awesome very good uh, wine and war that's a that's a great book I, I very much enjoyed that as well um, for me I always recommend Karen McNeil's wine bible uh, it's it's pretty uh, friendly uh, and I always say I just read. The introduction, it's maybe the first 80 pages or so, gives you the overview, and then you can use the rest of the book just as a reference guide as you need it. And and I think that's a, a much uh, easier way to tackle it than to try and sit down and read a 600-page poem, <laughs> um, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the encyclopedia is definitely not for, like, fun reading, right? Like, <laughs>
0: Very good. Christopher, you, uh, when I think about about hosting and I think about uh, hospitality, you are always uh, front and center. I've had uh, some of uh, the best times uh, at your dinner parties. Uh, What is um, uh, your top uh, hosting tip?
1: Uh, Have fun. You know, I think oftentimes hosting intimidates people and it makes it awkward. So I think one of the biggest keys to, being a host is just enjoy it, right? Like, set yourself up for success, have your prep done ahead of time, unless you're like me, and you like prepping. And prepping is a part of is a part of the entertaining, but like, don't, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Don't be too extravagant. Keep it at your your level. And if you're not comfortable, you know, making a bunch of different dishes, just less is more sometimes. Also, always have cheese around.
0: Uh, couldn't, couldn't couldn't agree more. I think I think my pitfall is always is always leaning into the theatrics a little too much, and then you get you get uh, behind and bogged down and and stressed. And so you're right. Yeah, C- uh, keep it simple. Um, and uh, and you know I think just just pour wine to have to have fun. Um, and so Paul, I'm going to hand it over to you uh, for your your holiday tips and final thoughts, and we'll tie it up.
2: Um, I mean, I couldn't agree more with the whole like. Just don't put too much pressure on yourself, and yeah, like cook with love and and fun in in mind, and that's always I, I try to make fun be my guide uh, in everything I do. At the end of the day, I just I really want to have fun, and I want the people around me to have fun, and I, I no nobody needs that that pressure. So yeah, just you know, do everything within your within your ability and and just do it fun and do it with love and guaranteed good time.
1: I, I'm going to throw in two other things if I can real quick. <clears throat> just in case, if anyone... So there's two things. If you've got... If it's within your means and you have the financial ability to do so, I have found two things to be amazing for uh, entertaining and hospitality. One of which is... Hire somebody to clean up if you can. Uh, Somebody to do the dishes is the most amazing part of, is is like the best gift that you could possibly give yourself. Uh, Or in fact, in many cases, give your guests. Um, The other is, and this was one that, you know, when it comes to holidays and things like that, um, giving gifts can be, you know, is always a challenging thing for people. One of the things that I've done a couple of times that I find to be the most amazing gifts is I've hired a photographer to come and shoot photos and giving those photos out to people afterwards is like, you know, for their little family, like little family photos and things like that is such an amazing uh, addition to holiday entertaining. Cool.
0: I I can attest to that. Um, I got some, some photos from, from your home that uh, I, I very much love and, and use uh, uh, quite a bit, actually, for my, <laughs> for my professional purposes. Uh, and they're, not, they're not quite headshots. I look like hell, but you could tell I'm having a good time and that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that makes all the difference.
1: <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It's like, it's those memories that are built. So, I don't know. I found that to be such a great gift for people as opposed to something more traditional. There's something that's kind of, that's a memory.
2: The, the dishes tip is a good one too. I mean, what's the saying? You're born and then you do dishes
1: <laughs> and then you die or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, we always, I, I always try to do that for our Christmas. Cause we'll have like, we have 20 people over for Christmas over two days. And it's just like, the dishes are just hellacious. And we hired somebody one year as a gift to, to like the family. And it was just like, Oh my God, this made so much this made this made the whole weekend better
0: can't think of a better place to tie it up uh gentlemen thank you both so much paul always a pleasure chris thank you so much for your generous time uh i really
2: appreciate it yeah thank you christopher great to great to catch up
1: gentlemen thank you so much dan continue enjoying tuscany and thinking about us all right
2: thanks
0: buddy
1: miss you guys cheers
2: cheers
0: cheers Thanks for listening to another episode of A Northern Wine Odyssey presented by Cork Report Media. Big thanks to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. We've got more episodes on the way. Stay tuned.